I remember the months leading up to our wedding. Kim and I were very, very excited for obvious reasons. I had met the, the woman of my dreams who I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. And uh, she had met the man of her dreams who she wanted to spend the rest of her life with. And we were so very, very excited. <clears throat> and we got married. And then some of the realities of marriage hit. Uh, the first argument over something that was very trivial. Uh, the first pair of socks left on the floor where they shouldn't be. Uh, the first little quirk that came out of each other that we hadn't learned while we were dating, when we had our best foot forward. And uh, very quickly, although marriage is such an incredible blessing, and for us, when we, when we moved into it, we were really looking for it to bring a lot of comfort in a number of areas of our lives, including, and probably first and foremost, loneliness, and marriage is a comfort, and it is a blessing. But as we found out shortly after getting married, there's a lot of disappointment that comes with it. You know, we, we got married a little bit later in our 30s, and so a lot of the, the like ex exceeding expectations of what it would be had been diminished somewhat, but we still were there. And, and we would honestly say, both of us, we love each other, and we are thrilled we're married. But, but shortly after, there was some disappointment because it, it, didn't, it didn't bring the comfort, the ultimate comfort that we were looking for and looking to it to provide. And shortly after, when, you know, we, we had those, those arguments or those, those just disappointments, she quickly learned I wasn't the knight in shining armor. I had quirks. And, and she pretty quickly, we, we were reminded of the fact that marriage is a parable of something much greater. That marriage by itself doesn't bring the ultimate comfort that sometimes we set upon it. Now, I'm giving you an example of marriage. It works for anything else. For those of you that aren't married or maybe have never been married, we, we look to something to bring comfort when life gets hard, which that is the description of life in a broken world. Life is hard. Things happen, and we just want comfort. There's nothing wrong with comfort. In fact, we're designed to be comforted. Question is, where do you find it? Where is the source of comfort? This psalm opens up in verse one with the psalmist saying, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. That word pleasing means good or joyful or comforting. And so here is this psalmist at the beginning of the psalm saying, my heart is overwhelmed with this comforting thought. And then what does he describe that is most comforting? He describes a wedding. He describes a wedding, a royal wedding. You say, well, why, why does that bring comfort? Well, who is this psalm talking about? You can look at the title. Uh, and, and if you have a Bible, the title says a love song or a marriage song. Okay, it's the song, it's a song about a royal wedding of the king of Israel. In fact, this psalm was, uh, this was read, this was used in the royal weddings of Israel's kings that fell in the line of David. And it was a psalm that verses two to nine talk about the bridegroom, his power and his majesty. And then verses 10 to 15 talks about the bride, her beauty, her loyalty, 
But the question is, who, who is this psalm ultimately talking about? Yes, it's speaking of Israel's king and a queen and the marriage of a, a royal wedding. But Hebrews chapter 1 tells us ultimately who this psalm is speaking of. In quoting verses 6 to 7 in Hebrews 1, listen to what the author says of Hebrews. But of the Son, speaking of Jesus Christ, that's all of Hebrews 1, talking about how great Jesus Christ is. But of the Son, Jesus Christ, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Psalm 45 is a marriage song about a royal wedding of the ultimate king who sits on the throne of David, and that is Jesus Christ. And his bride, the church. Now, why does this bring comfort when life gets hard? First, we're gonna look at the refuge of the bridegroom. Verses two to nine speak of the bridegroom and specifically of his, his power and of his goodness. We'll start with power. Look at verse three. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. Verse four, ride out victoriously. Let your right hand, that right hand is the hand of power, Teach you awesome deeds. Verse five, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemy. The peoples fall under you. You know, this is language that describes a powerful king and a powerful military who's, who's very victorious. But when you run that through Hebrews one, what this is speaking of and who this is speaking of is the ultimate king, the ultimate bridegroom, Jesus Christ. That he is the all-powerful one. That he is victorious. That everything in this world, everything in this culture, everything in your life is in his power and his control. Now, what does this mean? It means that Jesus Christ has never and will never be wringing his hands trying to figure out how to fix something that's gone wrong in his world. It means that Jesus Christ is never caught by surprise by some act of evil, or by some act of sin. It means that Jesus Christ is not having any sort of panic attack over our culture right now, or this world, or even what's going on in your life. That he is all powerful. You know, my son is in a stage right now where he's in the, I'll just call it the Jesus is bigger stage. And so conversations will come up like, wow, that's a big dog. He'll say, but daddy, Jesus is bigger, right? Like, yeah, son, he's probably bigger than that dog. Or, or somebody will say, wow, he's really tall. My son will say, but daddy, Jesus is, he's taller, right? I'm like, ah, yeah, yeah, he's probably taller. Right, or, or here's the latest. Daddy, Jesus can pick things up, can he? I said, oh yeah, he can. What do you mean by that, son? Like he can pick up a car? Oh yeah, daddy, he can pick up a car. He can pick up our house, right? Yeah, he could do it if he wanted to, buddy. Daddy, he could pick you up on the pinky of his finger, couldn't he? 
This happened a couple days ago. I said, yes, son, he could. That is good theology coming from a child. That Jesus is powerful. He's strong. He's victorious. I love how the, the Heidelberg Catechism, it's a document that was written in the 1500s to teach about who Christ was. And, and listen to what it says in, in answer to the question, what is your only comfort in life and death? What's your only comfort? It's a long answer. I'm just gonna give you a snippet of it. I belong to Jesus Christ and he preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Now that is comforting in a broken world, in a hard world. You may feel like your life is spinning out of control. And while Jesus has great compassion and understanding because he put on flesh with what you're feeling, he is not spinning out of control with you. There's a story in the Gospels where Jesus gets on a boat with his disciples and he's crossing to the other side of the sea and they get offshore and it says a great storm kicked up. A storm that was so powerful that even his disciples were scared. And that's saying something because they were fishermen. They were on the water all the time. They navigated storms all the time. But this was a storm that was so big that even they were scared. And utter chaos breaks out on this boat. Utter chaos. Death is imminent. Fear is palpable. And the text makes it very clear to say, but Jesus was in the stern of the boat asleep on a cushion. And the disciples go down and wake him up. And you know what they say to him? Jesus, do you care that we are dying? You ever been there? Jesus, do you care that we're dying? Do you care that we're in so much pain? Right. We've all been there at some point. Maybe you right now. And it says that Jesus woke up and he rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, peace, be still. And it immediately grew calm. And then he looked at his disciples and he said, why are you still afraid? Why are you still afraid? Jesus Christ is all powerful. Now, if we stopped in the description of the bridegroom, Jesus at this point, there would be some tension and it would leave some questions for you. Number one, maybe, well, why hasn't he calmed the storm in my life? Why is this evil still in our lives? Or if he's all powerful, then does that mean that Jesus is on the hook for evil? You're telling me he's in complete control. Look at our world. And that's why this second description of the bridegroom, Jesus, is so important. He's not only all powerful, 
but he's all good. Look at verses six and seven. And these are the verses that are quoted in Hebrews chapter one, speaking explicitly of the son, Jesus Christ. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness, or that word is justice. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Jesus hates wickedness. He hates evil, and he has a deep love for what is good and what is right. Now, here's where the tension comes. You may say, if he's all-powerful and he's all-good, then why do I have cancer? Why did my dad die? Why did my kid get uh, diagnosed with leukemia? Why did I get fired from my job? And, and you have to understand that at the core of that is a, is a faulty assumption that we know what is good and what is best. That we know what is good and what is best. You could run this through the, the most horrific tragedy that our world has ever seen. The most horrific act of injustice that our world has ever seen. And that is the crucifixion of a man who was innocent, completely innocent. Jesus Christ was an innocent man and he was crucified. His disciples were convinced that the death of their master, Jesus, was a bad thing. And Peter was so convinced of it that he chopped someone's ear off to prevent it from happening, or at least to attempt to prevent it from happening. They were convinced they knew what was good, and there was no place, realm, notion of how it could be good that Jesus would die. And yet we know that the death of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, led to something very good. That is your salvation, the salvation of his people. How many times have you seen someone do something and thought to yourself, what in the world were they thinking? And this, this should happen regularly, right? We're in a broken world, okay? Maybe in your family. What, 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 in what universe were they operating when they did X? What were they thinking? That is the, the, the most senseless act. They, they obviously didn't think it through. What were they thinking? And then, and then a day or two later, you get a new piece of information. And you go, oh, now I know why they did that. I was missing that critical piece of information, right? That, that happens to us on a regular basis. If that is true, then how much more can that be true on the grand scale of what Jesus is doing in his world? That just because we don't see the good in it doesn't mean that it is not good what's happening overall in the grand scheme. It's like looking at a, uh, watching a parade through a, a knot hole on a wooden fence. You know, if you're looking at a parade through a knot hole, what do you see? Exactly what's in front of you. You don't see what's coming, you don't see what's going. Right? That, that's how we live life. That is how we are limited. Jesus, so to speak, is looking over the fence. He sees what's coming, what's going. He actually directs what's coming and directs what's going. He's all-powerful. 
He's all good. I'll finish off that answer to the Heidelberg of that first question. What is your only comfort in life and death? Right? I belong to Jesus Christ. He preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. That's his all-powerfulness. Not a hair can fall from your head apart from the will of God and his work through Christ. But then here, listen to the last part of the answer. All things must work together for my salvation. That everything that is happening in your life, that you are having trouble conceiving of any good in certain parts of it, you can be assured that if you are in Christ and you have trusted Jesus Christ, that he is working all things out for your good, for your salvation, for you being conformed into his image. That Jesus is all powerful and he's all good. And he knows what's best and he knows what's good. Now that's a refuge for you to fall into the arms of such a bridegroom that is that good and that powerful. What's your only comfort when life gets hard? First, the refuge of the bridegroom. But second, the security of the bride. You'll see here in verse 10, as the description of the bride begins, that, that the bridegroom brings great security to the bride. Let's start in verse 13. All glorious is the princess. This is speaking of the bride, the, the, the queen that's gonna be joining this king in marriage. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwo interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king. This is a bride, a queen, who is brought into the castle and dressed up and made fit for the presence of the king. And we learn through John in Revelation very similar language as the bride of Christ the church has spoken about. Revelation 21, 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, that's the church, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's speaking of us, the church, the bride of Christ being adorned, made beautiful for Jesus the bridegroom. And then Isaiah, the prophet, chapter 61, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Jesus, the bridegroom, took your robe, your coat, ripped, tattered, tainted, stained, sinful, shameful robe. He took it off you. He put it on himself. He was crucified on a cross, and then he buried it. Third day, he rose from the dead, and he took a coat of righteousness, his righteousness, and he placed it on you, such that if you are in Christ, if you have trusted Christ, that God sees you with the robe of Jesus' righteousness draped around you, holy and blameless. What is true of Jesus is true of you if you're in Christ. 
You wear this amazing robe of righteousness and perfection. That is your position before God, and that's how he sees you. And yet, we do a great job of putting on fig leaves. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, our first parents in the garden sinned. They rebelled. They had this beautiful world God had given them. They said no, no to God. We're gonna find our own happiness on our own, independent of God. And then it said immediately they became aware of their what? Nakedness and shame. That just simply means they became aware of their sin and their rebellion before God and the shame that came with that. And what was the first thing they did? They took some fig leaves and they covered up. Didn't work very well. Because what did God do? says God made clothings or a garment of skin for them. What's that mean? That was animal skin. That means an animal had to die in the garden. Blood had to flow for God to provide clothing that could at least temporarily or cover their shame. You realize that for our first parents in the garden, in this perfect place of utter bliss and utter glory, do you know how horrific that was when they saw blood for the first time and an animal die? Blood was shed to cover their shame. God moved towards them in grace immediately. And the Old Testament is a story of a trail of blood and a trail of animal sacrifices. More animals died over and over until it finally culminated at the cross where Jesus Christ died once and for all. He shed blood once and for all to cover our shame and give us garments of righteousness. And yet, we hide and we put on fig leaves and we try to sew together something that's gonna patch up our, our righteousness. You say, how's that happen? Let me give you an example. You have a conversation with someone and you leave that conversation and you are worried to death that you have offended that person or that you wronged them or that you said something that was just really off color and, and you are really worried. Now let's just make the assumption you really did say something that was off color, wrong, offensive, okay? You go to your spouse or you go to a friend and say, I am so worried. This is what I said to that person. And I feel like I've offended them, I've, I've hurt them. I, 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 I really, I, I blew it. And your spouse or your friend says, oh, it wasn't that bad. What you did really wasn't that bad. I mean, they just took it wrong. You, listen, you're okay. You're okay. Just quit worrying about it. You really didn't do anything wrong, right? And let's just assume that that spouse or friend and deep down knows, ooh, that was slightly off. That was bad. But why do you say that? Why do we say that to each other? because we just wanna make the person happy. We wanna, we wanna minimize their shame. What are we doing there? We're putting fig leaves on. We're putting fig leaves on them. And fig leaves don't last long. They're not a cover for shame. It's like this, when, when you do that, um, have you ever, have you ever gone to a party severely underdressed? Let's just assume you show up at a, wed a formal wedding reception in jeans, flip-flops, and a shirt. And everybody else has a dress and a suit 
and a coat and a tie, maybe a tuxedo here and there. If you've ever been in that situation, how do you feel? <laughs> Awful. You want to crawl in a hole. You want to get out as quickly as you can. You feel so insecure in that moment. That's what we're doing to ourselves and others when we fig leaf each other. We think we're, we think we're helping them out. Ah, we're just going to minimize the shame. There's only one thing that can take away our shame. That is the righteous robe of Jesus Christ that he gives us. We cannot minimize, we cannot get rid of each other's shame, let alone our own. And so what that means is that we ourselves and how we help other people is to admit our failure. You know what, I did blow it. It was off color, it was rude, it was offensive. I absolutely blew it. And then we're reminded that the robe of Jesus' righteousness is on us that we can therefore freely repent, freely go to that person and not have to hide and patch up our righteousness and so on fig leaves. If you've trusted Christ, you've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Don't try to patch up your righteousness with fig leaves and don't help others do that. There is, when I said the bridegroom brings great security to the bride, there is great security when you are living in functionally at a heart level that I have been clothed with the robe of Jesus' righteousness and therefore I can be honest about my failures and my weaknesses and my sin because that does not define me and I can't patch up any kind of righteousness. Great freedom there and great security. Second, Notice that the security that's brought from the bridegroom to the bride, so one, you, you're clothed in righteousness, but number two is that the bridegroom, Jesus, frees you from having to make a name for yourself, which is another way, another way to call that is, is legacy building, right? Look at what happens when this queen, this bride, submits herself to the king when she's clothed with beautiful garments in the king's castle and is joined to him in marriage. Look at verse 12. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. She is honored. She is praised by the nations. She's praised by those around her. Why? because she has identified with and been connected to the king. She gets a name because the king has a name. She gains a reputation because she's attached to the king who has a reputation. And it goes on, verse 17. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. That's speaking of the king, right? Nations generations, the king will be praised forever and ever. What does this mean? It means that Jesus Christ is the only name that is gonna be remembered or that is to be remembered from generation to generation. That Jesus Christ is to be exalted and praised. And what that means is that the goal of your life is not to build a legacy for yourself. That people will remember you from generation to generation. The good thing is a lot of us don't have to worry about that, <laughs> okay? I don't know of how many super, super famous people there are in this room. But, but the point is, we still 
we try to do it. And the bridegroom gives you great security to say, you don't have to try to build a name for yourself or, or build a legacy. That's not the goal. The goal is that my life would serve Jesus Christ and exalt his name, that his legacy would carry on from generation to generation. You know that if you, if you spend a lifetime trying to build a name for yourself, that you will grow more and more insecure in doing that. And you know why? Because to build a name for yourself and to build a, a legacy, you have to work increasingly hard at hiding those things that are, that are not worthy of that legacy or worthy of that name you're trying to build. You have to hide the bad and promote the good. You try that for a long time and you will grow incredibly insecure because you know at some point somebody's gonna find me out. Jesus Christ the bridegroom brings you great security to say, listen, you don't have to build a legacy. I have given you your name. You have a name because you're united to me. You have a reputation because you're identified with me. And my name will carry on forever and ever. So what's the right response to the description of such an amazing bridegroom? Right? This, this, this chapter is this picture of this amazing bridegroom, Jesus Christ and the great security that he brings to his bride, which we know from Revelation is the church. And, and important there, his, his people, plural. Not just individual, right, but plural. The church is the bride of Christ. What's the right response? Look at verses 10 to 11. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. This is again, speaking to the bride. Forget your people and your father's house and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. This queen was of foreign descent. She was of foreign descent. And so she had to leave her people. She had to leave her house and unite herself to this king. It's very similar to what Abraham had to do. Abraham had to leave his father's house, right, to respond to the call of the Lord. Ruth had to do the same thing. Ruth had to pledge allegiance to God's people, right, and not her own as she responded to the calling of the Lord. And then Jesus says the same thing in the Gospels when he says, whoever leaves brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel will receive a hundredfold. The only response to such an amazing bridegroom is full submission and full trust. Early on in our marriage, Kim and I walked through a season of tremendous emotional pain. I'll just leave it at that. It was a season of incredible difficulty, of devastating news, and I, we remember vividly uh, right in the midst of that, at, at one point being in our house, just both of us weeping and, and unable to comfort one another. You know, usually in, in, in marriage, there's a time where, you know, one's hurting and the other can comfort and, you know, we can, but this was a time where we were both on the mat, weeping, unable to comfort each other and, and, 
and it was in that time that we were reminded of the greater marriage, of the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, the one who ultimately brings comfort. And so we were on the mat clinging, both of us clinging to Jesus. And it was a beautiful picture of what it looks like to, to cling to ultimately our bridegroom, Christ, in the midst of life being really, really hard. You know, this, um, this bride of Christ imagery is harder for men to connect to for obvious reasons. One of the reasons that I think we, it's really hard or it can be hard to connect to is because we typically reduce marriage or we talk about marriage uh, heavily about romance. That's part of it. It's a small part of it. But marriage is about protection, provision, security, comfort, friendship, right? All those things that the bridegroom Jesus gives to his bride, the church, the community of God's people. That comfort he gives, and therefore we can connect, very much so to this bridegroom imagery, whether you're a man or a woman. We, the church, are a community of people that as the bride will one day experience the great ultimate comfort that is described in Revelation 21, where it speaks of the bride being adorned for her husband, and then a few verses later, Revelation 21.4, it describes Jesus, the bridegroom, wiping away every tear. You just think about that for a moment. Have you ever been full of tears, weeping, and someone, maybe physically or metaphorically, have wiped away your tears? Right, the day is coming where Jesus Christ as bridegroom will wipe away every tear once and for all. Goes on, verse four, to say where there'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, now that's a description of comfort. And that comfort comes from Jesus the bridegroom now, but one day when he returns to get his bride, it will come in full. And when he comes to re return to get his bride, Revelation speaks of a great feast. It's the re wedding reception of all wedding receptions. It's called the marriage supper of the lamb, where we will sit with Jesus and feast with him. And all this described that I just read to you in verse four will be true and we will experience comfort for eternity. But until that day, Jesus is so gracious to give us this foretaste of that meal that's coming. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It is a meal that when you taste it, right, you are tasting the comfort that Jesus brings in the midst of a hard life and a hard world. And the Holy Spirit does that through the Lord's Supper. What is your only source of comfort when life gets hard? It is the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and the security that he brings. Let's pray. Father, we would all probably be quite shocked if we knew in a room like this the hard things that people were and are facing. 
And we do a pretty good job of not only hiding our sin as we talked about, but we do a good job of even hiding the hard. No, Father, would you, by your Holy Spirit, bring comfort to those that are in the midst of something really hard? Bring comfort to those who who are weary from it? Would you give them this this picture of a royal wedding, this picture of you, Jesus, as the bridegroom, the great comforter? And would you comfort them now? And Father, as we move to the Lord's Supper, would this be truly, by your Spirit, a foretaste of what is coming? Jesus, when you return for your bride, And would we be comforted both individually but collectively as a family through this meal? We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.